Hi. Hey, hello. Thanks everyone for joining today's Ukrainian Spaces. Um, Valeria, happy to hear your voice as well. Um, does it does it really matter if I ask you how are you or how you've been? <laughs> I know that this is the the most hated question by everyone. Yeah, uh, every Ukrainian. Uh, well, I guess, and this goes back to a conversation we once had about guilt of people living abroad. But I can't really complain um, personally right now. I know that for those of you who are tuning in and aren't amongst Ukrainian Twitter uh, people. There's a, a, I mean, a joke, it's not very funny, but there's a joke going around right now about, like, well, this, it's not a joke about the possibility of a nuclear strike, but the joke is that there's going to be, in Kiev, like, a massive orgy on, on a, one of the, like, mountains right before it happens, and it's, like, so many different funny memes and, like, telegram groups for every city where it's going to happen. So, like, even in, like, the shittiest of times where there's, like, a, threat of nuclear, you know, war and complete devastation. Uh, Ukrainians are making j- jokes about all sorts of stuff. I-, I just found it really funny. Have you seen it going around? Mm, yeah, I think it's also a very Ukrainian thing to um, have this very dark sense of humor, especially something that helps you, really helps you to go through all this insanity, whether you're in Ukraine or outside, the Ukrainians outside Ukraine. Um, that's a uh, fucking hilarious indeed but um yeah th- these are were quite sleepless night as nights as well um because my home city is being shelled uh for almost a week every night at uh, at 4 3 a.m in the morning and my parents there uh all the time so this kind of adds up a bit of insanity because you're do not sleep well and you're constantly trying to um, keep track of what is happening there, but you also need to um, work and you need to keep your spirits high. So I live off all those memes and Ukrainian Twitter is just absolutely the best in terms of uh, as a support system. Anyhow, um, I know that you also been working very hard. I saw that post that you posted about Russian mobilization that got a lot of attention. Um, can you explain everyone else uh, what that post was about and why it kind of went uh, viral? Yeah, especially those people who are not on Instagram. Bless you. <laughs> For sure, I can, and I'm sure that we'll talk more about it as well with um, Victor today. But essentially, you know, when I mean, the biggest, I guess, not the biggest, but one of the news that came out last week was the mobilization that was happening in Russia. And we've been talking with Maxim and others for such a long time about sort of Russian colonialism and and the way that people still turn a blind eye on Russian colonialism. And we've been talking about it a lot in the context of obviously Ukraine. Today, we'll talk about it in the context of other countries. But also, I just really saw it come to life in the way that they were mobilizing people across the country and I wrote a post about like why Russia is basically racist and colonial and it gathered some of the proof that we were seeing of people being uh, mobilized in Dagestan, in in, in Chechnya and a lot of other places that Russia at one point in its history colonized and I think it really struck a nerve and I I just, uh, I don't know, I just hope that, you know, this is one of the ways that we can really bring to light some of these practices that continue happening that have been happening um and just to show that you know when we talk about ukraine it's not just because russian colonialism it is happening in ukraine in big time right now and we're seeing you know a proper war happening but there's also a lot of its iterations all around Mm. all around the region and yeah i just wanted to sort of almost you know make people within russia who have been colonized i guess know that ukrainians know that they've been colonized as well you know but i had a bit of like i i I saw that post and i actually stopped and started thinking about something and this is a question i really want to ask everyone who's listening you can join the this new feature and spaces where there is a, a button for comments and so please do share with us what you think about it but Here's my problem with it. 
not a problem. It's just something that makes me really think. So, okay, of course, we want to build up this solidarity with colonized, other colonized nations, colonized by Russia, whether outside Russia or inside Russia. But then there's also an issue that we all deeply care about is the issue of collective responsibility of Russian citizens for for genocide in Ukraine and what is happening there. And on one hand, I do care about the fates of all those nations that were um, subjugated by Russia over the centuries and now are inside this prison of nations, as Russia is being called. Uh, colonized and being drafted and sent to the front line and ethnic Russians are just basically hiding behind their backs as it used to be in many, in many wars. Ukrainians and Belarusians were in the same position during World War II. But do I show my solidarity with them while they're being sent to Ukraine and also, you know, participate in genocide from the other side? Or do I apply to them the collective responsibility uh, that I expect from any Russian citizen to admit. Anyhow, this is the question for all of you. Um, please share because I know that lots lots of Ukrainians, but not necessarily Ukrainians, have very strong feelings about it. Uh, we want to hear from you. And if you're listening to this as a podcast, please do that as well in comments. And I will remind everyone that this is 100% listener-supported, independent, volunteer initiative supported by our Patreon sponsors um, and it exists thanks to your support and I see some patrons listening to us today so not only you get a lot of extra cool content by becoming our our sponsors on Patreon but most importantly during our live broadcast you have this exclusive right to ask your own questions of our featured Ukrainians and featured Ukrainian allies and whether in person or through chats or uh, through Patreon page. So please do that and do consider supporting us. We really um, value uh, your support uh, on Patreon. And And it really helps as well because we are able to grow and give more interesting and cool exclusive content to all of you who are listening and who are part of our community. So it actually gives results to making our podcast and our community a little bit better. Absolutely. So let's uh, proceed to our feature, this time Ukrainian ally and Ukrainian spaces for season two. We are trying a bit different things on top of featuring Ukrainian voices all the time, uh, the diversity of Ukrainian voices and who help us to decolonize some Ukraine conversations online. We also started building anti-colonial solidarity bridges to other countries in the world where we know very cool, badass Ukraine allies who are at the moment manifest their solidarity with us. And today's episode is going to build that bridge to Kyrgyzstan. And um, to today with us is Victor. Um, Victor, hi, are you here? Hi, yes, I'm here and I'm very happy to to be with you in this space, Maxim. We haven't seen each other for years, I guess. I actually saw you in Warsaw during, during the Pride, but I had a chance because the, the, the crowd was so massive. Anyhow. Yeah, there were many people there. Absolutely. Uh, I, we uh, have this golden rule that our future guests always introduce uh, themselves uh, the way they want it. So please do, please tell us who you are, where you come from and uh, how your life has uh, changed in the last seven months since the genocide in Ukraine started. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Biktur. I'm from Kyrgyzstan, as Maxim has already mentioned. Uh, and I'm one of the founders of a media organization called CLOP, which is now one of the largest media organizations in Kyrgyzstan. And we are famous for our investigations of organized crime, corruption, also for our journalism school, and uh, educational project that we have been running in Kyrgyzstan for 15 years now. Uh, And I also have a very deep connection with Ukraine. Uh, The connection is uh, so deep that I even learned Ukrainian, which, uh, you know, our hosts can confirm because I had just spoken Ukrainian with them. Um, And this connection started a long time ago. And this connection has been already so long that if I just tell the story of my connection with Ukraine, it would require, I guess, a separate podcast and I don't want to <laughs> uh, to waste your time on my memories that long. Uh, but shortly, you know, I first came to Ukraine in 2010 
uh, as an observer, elections observer. Um, and my first ever city in Ukraine was Donetsk, uh, which is, you know, quite unusual, I guess, for many people who travel to Ukraine. Not so many people started with Donetsk, you know. Um, and um, that experience was very interesting. First of all, those were the elections where uh, Yanukovych, you know, the future Russian LA president kind of was uh, elected. Uh, then Donetsk was also very interesting to me in terms of how visually it was very similar to Bishkek, my hometown. I was surprised by that completely. You know, like Donetsk was almost like a copy paste of Bishkek, the central part of it at least. Mm, but also how interesting was, you know, the composition of views within the city's society. I, I didn't have enough time, of course, to maybe learn it deeper, but it was so interesting to see that the trends of what people think about, of what uh, people's views are, were so similar to Kyrgyzstan, my home country. Because there was, you know, this pro-Ukrainian part of Donetsk, there was also this pro-Russian part of Donetsk. And while I was there in 2010, there was actually a small, a very small protest uh, with, you know, the future uh, 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 DNR, you know, these flags, so it had it had already existed by the time, and there was this organization already. It was like a uh, legal entity registered under the name of Donetsk Republic, which had already existed since 2006, as far as I know. And they had already started this protest, and they were kind of preparing back then, as far as I understand now, to start even larger protests in case Yanukovych, uh, you know, would lose those elections. But it didn't happen, and and still most people in Donetsk didn't perceive them seriously. They were thinking, oh, okay, these are some just freaks, you know, who are organizing this small pro-Russian protest. Nobody really cared about them that seriously. And of course, no one could imagine what would it lead to in four years, you know. And, um, and the thing is, we had the same in Bishkek at the same time. Because we also had this weird uh, Russian pro-Russian protest organized by the organization actually called Ruski Mir, you know. <laughs> And uh, uh, especially when, you know, some senior U.S. politician would come to Kyrgyzstan, they would usually protest in front of the U.S. embassy, uh, of course, you know, blaming U.S. for interfering into our politics or whatever. So, uh, yeah, it was fascinating, you know, to see this, um, um, to see the similarities. And then I would return to Ukraine. I returned to Kharkiv in 2012. I came to Kiev when Euromaidan uh, had already been going on. And when the war started in 2014, I took it very personal, you know, because, again, because Donetsk was so similar to my home city. And then seeing Donetsk in this state uh, was very traumatic for myself. So in May 2014, I went to Donetsk again. And, uh, and I saw uh, it in the, you know, in, in, in such a chaotic period, uh, which didn't last long because then basically Donetsk was occupied. Uh, and I returned there. So I had this also experience of traveling as a, as a journalist to the front line and also crossing the front line into the occupied territories. So that's, uh, you know, how I spent 2014 and 15 in Ukraine. So, yeah, you know, and, and then I moved to Ukraine at some point uh, last year. Um, and now I'm kind of sharing my life between Poland and Ukraine, living in yeah. both countries at the same time, sort of. Yeah. And I can testify that you speak better Ukrainian than I do. Same. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, I guess this is some exaggeration, but thank you. Mm, yeah. Look, I, I wanted really to, um, if Valeria doesn't mind, I really wanted to like really do follow up because you mentioned the Russian fueled um, divide in Eastern Ukraine. And as a person who coming from that part of Ukraine, this really personal for me. And I also saw it unfolding. But today we're you know, speaking on with a background of genocide in Ukraine, but also with a territorial crisis and um, hostilities happening between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And I know we discussed with you as well how that conflict and that crisis has also colonial roots and also is being exploited by Russia to saw a divide and to manipulate former colonies and to um, uh, insert more instability there. Um, so can you explain everyone else maybe uh, about this barrel, if how you can see it and if you see it between um, between what is happening in your own country at the moment as we speak in Ukraine? Uh, 
Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, this is, of course, very sad what's going on in between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And um, uh, we should understand that, of course, the nature um, of this conflict is different. Um, I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like a colonial, former colonial empire attacking, you know, its former colony. In case with Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, it's two former colonies uh, fighting against each other, mm, which is very unfortunate. You know, I wish we actually had like really good relationship with Tajikistan because it would benefit both of us. And But yes, at the same time, as you know, as, uh, as you correctly um, pointed it out, um, the border conflict between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan is a direct uh, consequence uh, of uh, of, col of the colonial rule, you know, of the way the borders were um, chaotically drawn in 1924 when the Soviet Union decided, you know, to divide Central Asia into new administrative divisions. And, uh, and, and they did something uh, very confusing and complicated. Like, on one hand, they tried to sort of create national republics within Central Asia. On the other hand, ethnic groups lived, were, were so mixed in Central Asia. You know, there were some areas where like Kyrgyz and, uh, Kyrgyz and Uzbeks and Tajiks would basically live very mixed, you know. So it was, of course, very difficult to divide um, these areas. And um, what they ended up with is drawing uh, enormously complicated borders, which include a lot of exclaves, enclaves, you know, this sort of stuff. And Kyrgyzstan is a leader in terms of the number of enclaves of territories of other countries which we have inside our territory, you know. Um, and this is one of the, today this is one of the causes of, you know, this, uh, um, of this conflict. But um, there was an interesting trend with this, I'm, I'm going to talk about another thing, you know. Uh, first of all, in Kyrgyzstan, I should admit, um, even, you know, when the full-scale invasion by Russia began in February this year, um, I still think that there were quite a lot of people in Kyrgyzstan who were not that much interested into following, you know, what's going on. Of course, it was in the news everywhere. Of course, people were talking about it. But many people in Kyrgyzstan have their own problems. Uh, mostly, you know, uh, they have to deal with uh, poverty, with corruption, you know, with the local violence that we have, and so on. And for them, there is this illusion, you know, that this is happening so far from us, why should we care about it? And logically, I kind of can understand why people think like this. On the other hand, what I've been trying to explain to people in Kyrgyzstan that actually, hey, this, you know, what's, what's going on, like the Russian aggression against Ukraine, Russian war against Ukraine directly affects us as well. And Ukraine is basically fighting for our freedom too, because, you know, uh, we could have been victims of the same aggression at any moment as well in our history. And I mean, we kind of were at some point, you know, and uh, we are uh, under huge economic, mm, you know, dependence from Russia, for example. We have even a freaking Russian air base, you know, <laughs> on the territory of our country. So uh, it's, it's, it's really bad. But then, you know, when, mm, when Tajikistan, uh, and, and, you know, and, and with this border conflict with Tajikistan, the way it has usually been was that the conflict would be limited only, you know, to uh, only to the debated kind of areas of, of the border, uh, which is already bad, of course, anyway. But this year, something different happened. This year, uh, Tajikistan, uh, Tajikistan um, invaded kind of deeper inside the territory of Kyrgyzstan. That was something new. That was something that hadn't happened before. And this was also a very, very traumatizing experience for many people in Kyrgyzstan. Um, and then, you know, suddenly this video showed up when, you know, Tajik soldiers are erecting, you know, Tajik flag um, on, on a building of a school in a village in Kyrgyzstan, in a village which is considered like a Kyrgyz village by both sides, you know. So that was kind of too much, uh, we thought, that mobilized people in Kyrgyzstan, that um, created, you know, this, uh, another example of this enormous grassroots logistics, as I call it which actually is very similar to, you know, how grassroots logistics uh, exist in Ukraine. And then suddenly there was a huge growth of support of Ukraine, as far as I can see. Suddenly much more people started seeing parallels 
Because I mean, and, and that's of course, of course, we are talking about you know, uh, it's still not confirmed, and we cannot uh, claim whether it happened or not. But a very popular opinion in Kyrgyzstan has been throughout these days that Tajikistan is a much closer ally of Russia than we are. I mean, t- talking about our governments, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, people started seeing, you know, Kyrgyzstan as this sort of democratic country that is being attacked by a totalitarian country. And and this is where people in Kyrgyzstan started seeing, you know, parallels with with uh, uh, with Ukraine, for example. And uh, and then there was this interesting, like, and then one day there was this photograph spread uh, that suddenly became viral within Kyrgyzstan from the uh, from the Kiev metro. And I, I think I think there was the news broadcast in the metro uh, that showed, you know, uh, one of the Ukrainian TV channels covering uh, uh, the conflict on the Kyrgyz-Tajik border. And, uh, and, and the way, you know, it was covered, it was kind of supportive of Kyrgyzstan. And, 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 that, and that photograph with, you know, this uh, screen in the metro um, became so viral in Kyrgyzstan. And what I see right now is that um, uh, people believe that, uh, many people believe that Russia supports Tajikistan in attacking Kyrgyzstan. That's how the growth of, you know, anti-Russian kind of anti-colonial, um, uh, anti-colonial narrative is also becoming um, more popular in Kyrgyzstan, hopefully. And, um, and with this, you know, support of Ukraine, solidarity with Ukraine, hopefully is also growing. And, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I really wish that it continues this way. Yeah, no, for sure. And you briefly touched upon it when you were uh, describing earlier what was happening in Kyrgyzstan. But, you know, we've spoken a lot about the historical roots of Russian colonialism in Ukraine before. But I was wondering if you could tell people maybe I know we can spend another three hours talking about this, but just a little bit about sort of how Russia came about to um, colonizing and Kyrgyzstan and, and, and sort of running their oppressive policies and politics. And yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I love uh, sharing this, especially with Ukrainians, because uh, unfortunately, one of the sadder things that has been going on, especially since, you know, 1990s, is that uh, we've kind of lost connections uh, between former colonies. You know, people in Central Asia would really rarely travel to Ukraine. And uh, not so many Ukrainians would actually have connections with Central Asia. So whenever I would come to Ukraine, uh, and especially when I would, you know, give some public talk or something like that, um, quite often I would be the first person from Kyrgyzstan that people would meet. Uh, so kind of an exotic bird, you know, <laughs> for many people. But then, you know, I would start sharing our history and people would be like, oh my God, this is so similar to what we've been, we've been going through, you know? And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's the thing. <laughs> it is actually quite similar, unfortunately. But um, yeah, so talking about Russian colonization of Central Asia, and I will, I will, Mm, talk about Central Asia in general, because again, when Russia came to Central Asia, modern borders did not exist. So Central Asia was divided in an absolutely different way. There were different states with different borders, different way of life even, you know, like, so for example, Kazakhs and Kyrgyz people, they were mostly nomads. They lived, um, uh, they, they lived their life without actually any political administrative borders because they didn't need that, you know. And, um, so Russians, of course, first came to Kazakhstan because it's, you know, modern Kazakhstan, because it's like the uh, closest territory to them. And, um, and it happened in 19th century. So it happened later, you know, than the colonization of Ukraine happened, uh, much later. Um, and uh, still, you know, the tactics was uh, pretty brutal. And it was uh, definitely the tactic of, you know, divide and rule was very much exploited by, um, by, by Russians. Because... You know, one of the features of Kyrgyz and Kazakh tribes was that we really didn't need to have a central government, sort of. You know, there were many, many tribes which were independent from each other, which would create alliances or unions when it was needed. But usually they would live, you know, their own independent life. So on one hand, it was our strength because we really were sort of free people, you know. On the other hand, it became a weakness in the 19th century when uh, Russians started negotiating with different tribes and then it led you know to some tribes having disagreements between each other about uh who should they be allies with russia or kokand or bukhara emirate or you know like because there were several key players in the region so um 
and through through this division uh, that unfortunately happened, happened, Russia quickly progressed more to the south. Then suddenly they faced, you know, the uh, they suddenly faced um, uh, competition from the British Empire, which also tried to kind of colonize Central Asia. Then they agreed between themselves that you know British Empire would stop in Afghanistan and Russia would stop in Tajikistan. Uh, without, of course, ever asking us whether you know what we think about it, and um, and they came to Kyrgyzstan in 1960s, in early 1960s, sorry, early 1860s. That's when the northern Kyrgyzstan was captured, and then they had several years of fighting against tribes in southern Kyrgyzstan, and that's where like the fighting was, especially fierce, because uh, tribes from southern Kyrgyzstan were really resisting, you know, the occupation. Uh, one of the leaders of those tribes was Kurmanjan Datka, who is um, uh, actually, it's a rare example of a woman being uh, a leader of the tribe. Um, and she is now like uh, one of the, you know, cult heroes of our history. Um, unfortunately, people in southern Kyrgyzstan did not have enough resources to, you know, stand against Russian army for a long time. So in the end, the whole territory of Kyrgyzstan was captured. Some people, some Kyrgyz nomads, uh, they fled, you know, uh, if they could, to modern Afghanistan, for example. And then, you know, the first decades of colonial rule, um, unfortunately, I think, are not researched enough because they have been mostly taught to us, again, through the colonial prism. And I think we should still do a lot of work to kind of reprocess, rethink, you know, uh, revisit what was actually going on during that period. Because, of course, then, you know, in the in the school textbooks, this period was shown to us as if, you know, Russia was actually developing us, you know, as, as Russians love saying, we brought civilization to you. A yeah, uh, liberating force. <laughs> absolutely. You were like savage Asians, whatever, like, and to which we reply, like, come on, what the hell are you talking about? Savage Asians? Like, I mean, Uzbekistan had, like, you know, this um, uh, Bukhara, for example, you know, had this enormous astronomy observatories, you know, <laughs> which made such a huge input into the development of science, you know. I mean, who was savage, actually? So, okay, anyway, uh, sorry for my emotions. And then um, the... No, it's the largest... perfectly, perfectly rooted in absolute facts. <laughs> so yeah, there's well, nothing wrong about, about that. Yeah, and then the largest conflict, and, and this is a very important point in our history, the largest conflict then happened in 1916, when um, Russia had already been at war in World War One. Russia didn't have enough resources. You see these parallels. I mean, this is crazy, isn't it? And then Russia decided to uh, to mobilize uh, nomads, to mobilize, mobilize uh, Kyrgyz and Kazakh tribes to fight for 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 the Russian army to be become part of the Russian army. And now this was this caused a huge outrage, of course, because we were like, "What the hell are we like? Who are we going to fight against? Like Austria-Hungary? Like <laughs> don't care about Austria-Hungary in Kyrgyzstan." You know. Anyway, so uh, they tried to mobilize us, uh, to which we replied with basically resistance. Resistance was so huge that Russia had to bring a significant amount of troops to modern Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan to suppress, you know, this resistance. Uh, and it ended up with scores of people being killed. And up to date, we actually don't know the real figure of how many people were killed. But what we know for sure is that I don't know any Kyrgyz family who doesn't have uh, at least, you know, one ancestor, at least one person from, from the family who had to flee modern-day Kyrg Kyrgyzstan back then in 1916. So like my great-grandfather, for example, he fled to China. M most fled to, to modern-day China which was, well, that day also China. So uh, they fled there. That's why actually China has a pretty significant Kyrgyz community up to date. You know, um, many of them are descendants of those Kyrgyz people who uh, fled from, 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 you know, sort of genocide, actually. I mean, some people call it genocide in Kyrgyzstan, and I understand why it would be, you know, characterized like this. So um, this is one of the most traumatic uh, periods in our history, uh, today it is being commemorated by authorities, but this is a very sensitive topic, of course. And if, actually recently even, you know, like uh, some parts of population in Kyrgyzstan didn't like to discuss this topic. It was, you know, very inconvenient. 
and people would say, oh, you know, this is only nationalists supporting, you know, this, uh, discussing, you know, this 1916 resistance or whatever. Mm. Uh, but, but again, fortunately, now we talk more about it. And, and I think we should also revisit those days, research them to understand, you know, the tragedy that happened back then. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, you're talking about 1916, but it it almost feels like you're describing a lot of events of 2022 as well. So clearly, Absolutely. Russian colonialism is alive and well. But I wanted to quickly pass uh, to Tetiana, who's also part of our team, our Ukrainian Spaces team. Um, and she had uh, a comment and, and a question for you, if that's okay. Hi, Bektor. Privit. Um, Privit. Uh, so when you were speaking earlier um, about the division and how fractured uh, historically, um, you know, people have been, what's interesting is that that kind of immediately, in my mind, took me back to even when I was growing up, um, feeling that Ukrainians were conditioned under Soviet rule to be kind of in groups separate from each other. And, um, you know, I, cause I remember like, uh, Banderivci, Melnikivci, they were all kind of behind one person or another. And every, all groups were kind of like, well, we believe in this. And then we believe in this and everything. It wasn't very united even after the Soviet Union collapsed. And there was so much kind of historical conditioning under colonialization, um, under Russia that, you know, they kind of couldn't get themselves out of it. And I think, you know, that it was so, to me, that was so important for you to mention, because I think now, you know, the world is seeing Ukraine, you know, feverishly united and wanting to be united and kind of leaning in with each other, but it hasn't been that way. And I think it's so important that you kind of spoke about that because it's, you know, what people don't realize is that it's kind of like PTSD, right? It's like there is a trauma that people have carried with them where they don't see Ukrainians as one family, one country until kind of pushed to the brink, which we have done, you know, we have seen now. And, you know, I, I, I read the other day uh, that um, uh, Kyrgyz, Kyrgyz is d derived from the Turkic word for we are 40. Is that correct? Referring to the, referring to the 40 clans of Manas? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there are many versions, of course, where Kyrgyz name, like, appeared, the, the term Kyrgyz appeared from, but, yeah, yeah, one of the hypotheses is from the word 40. And what's interesting is that, I, you know, I wonder if, you know, your, with you, you know, have, first of all, before I get to that kind of 40 clans, like, have you, when you speak about uh, Russian colonialism, how has it... For yourself personally, how has it manifested for you? Any feelings of being uh, slightly separate or viewing kind of your culture and your history in a very different way than what you're probably feeling now or have been recently since your activism? Thank you for the question. And yes, there is, you know, one. I mean, there were many ways, of course, how, you know, Russian colonialism would divide people in Central Asia, uh, starting, you know, from, from basically drawing borders in the 1920s. But then one important um, uh, way to divide people even within, you know, the certain ethnic group was, of course, through the language. And this is, you know, my biggest pain uh, up to date because... Um, and I recently read a fantastic Twitter thread from a person from Kazakhstan who experienced absolutely the same. So basically what they managed to achieve, and again, it was so difficult to speak openly about it up until recently because you would immediately be labeled like as a nationalist or whatever. But, you know, what, what, what happened in the Soviet Union was that, in, in Central Asia at least, that especially Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan were the most Russified kind of republics within uh, Central Asia, you know, the Soviet Central Asia. And, um, uh, oh, yeah, Maxim actually shows this uh, thread. Yeah, exactly. This is that thread. And, um, and, and then, you know, uh, in order to be successful, um, you had to le learn Russian, especially since 1930s. 1930s were, was, you know, this turning point when um, there was basically an attack against indigenous languages in Central Asia. 
So in Kyrgyzstan, it was definitely attack against Kyrgyz language. After that, in Bishkek, which is the capital of Kyrgyzstan, there were almost no schools uh, where education would be in Kyrgyz language. Moreover, in Russian language schools, there would be no such course as, a Kyrgyz, as Kyrgyz language at all. And it lasted up until 1991. Uh, to me, this is insane. To me, this is, you know, it's, it's such an, it was such a brutal attempt to eradicate, you know, like to, is it the right word? I don't know. Erase, you know, Kyrgyz language from, from you know, being the language used in the capital of the Republic. Another thing that it sparked, that it caused, you know, was the division within Kyrgyz people, ethnic Kyrgyz people. Because, you know, those who would move to Bishkek to be successful, because, you know, that was one of the paths to success, um, they would be inspired by the state uh, to, you know, make their children Russian-speaking. Because also that was a key to success. And I'm, for example, I'm from the fourth generation of people who uh, moved to Bishkek. And I'm not bragging about it, just in case, you know. It's not that I'm saying like, oh, you know, I'm a capital person, you know, like, like my great-grandfather moved to Bishkek. No, it's not about that. Uh, it's actually uh, the, the reason of, you know, this trauma <laughs> for myself that, you know, I was born in such a Russian language environment, unbelievably Russian language, you know. Bishkek was so Russian language um, city. It still remains sort of, you know, I mean, um, and, um, but what it also caused was, you know, that um, then, of course, you know, even ethnic Kyrgyz people from Bishkek started being, you know, a little bit snobbish and more privileged, you know, and, and, and it, it, it caused, you know, this in, internal racism uh, within the Kyrgyz community. It is so sad, you know, uh, for me to admit that it's been going on in my country and it still exists to a certain extent. So this is, you know, this is, I think, one of the worst possible examples of how, you know, this division might happen. And I really wish, you know, that, that um, we overcome this. I really wish that Kyrgyz language returns to the position of being, you know, a popular language in our capital, because it is so bizarre that in Kyrgyzstan, even today, it, if you are a middle-class kind of professional, it is much more difficult to build a successful career if you don't speak Russian. And I think it should not be the way like this, you know. And, and hopefully, again, you know, what's going on um, in our post-colonial space during the last, you know, 10 years or so, with, with, with even more, with Russia, you know, kind of starting its neo-colonial policy, I hope it inspires us to, to revive, you know, our indigenous languages to the level that they should be. Thank you so much for sharing. And it also makes me so emotional hearing um, what you're saying and... Uh, because it speaks so closely and it hits so closely home um, when it comes to language issues that Ukrainians have struggled. And many people often kind of ask me, okay, so how exactly colonization, Russian colonization manifests in your lives? And uh, before, of course, the language issue would be the first one to mention because it's so important to you what kind of language you speak and it's so intimate. And I, I think then afterwards, I started looking around at experiences of other Russian colonized nations and people like yourself, Victoria, as well, coming from um, families that suffered from it. And then there is always language issue as well, because this is how the colonizer made sure that we feel inferior, that we do not respect our own roots, that we do not respect our own language, that they, we feel we feel like it's less developed and their mission was to uh in their views to civilize us and by civilizing meaning that we must speak russian language as a manifestation of uh superior culture and superior uh science and superior um whatever shit so yeah thank you so much for sharing it and i think it's important for everyone else to also understand why we are doing these episodes exactly because of this reason, because we can show you that it's not only happening to Ukrainians, but so many people who share this similar history of being colonized by Russia um, are struggling with the same kind of trauma because colonization at the end is trauma and it's traumatic. So thank you so much, Victor, for sharing that. Uh, 
I, I, I wanted to uh, ask you a, a little bit about, you know, um, not only the manifestation when it comes to uh, language, but also important topic that is very dear to you as a journalist, as, as someone who founded one of the baddest, most important investigative newsrooms uh, on the continent. Um, so this issue is related to kleptocracy, to corruption, and how Russia, through especially the last three decades, systemically uses kleptocracy and puppet regimes in the former colonies to keep uh, domination running. So can you talk more about that? Um, because it's also a topic that it's very close to Ukraine and Ukraine has been run by Russian installed kleptocratic regimes for um, many years. Um, yeah, but I would love to for you to educate the rest uh, of our listeners how it's, how it's working, how it's manifesting in Kyrgyzstan at the moment as well, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one thing that I, I want people to understand about Kyrgyzstan is that, you know, uh, the way Kyrgyzstan is structured politically is uh, pretty unusual, I think. It's pretty unique for Central Asian region. We have, you know, this label of being the only democracy of Central Asia, or whatever we are being called, you know, the island of democracy, how we were labeled at some point. We are sort of, in a way, but I mean, it doesn't mean that everything is so rosy and beautiful in Kyrgyzstan. So uh, Kyrgyzstan's main problem is the organized crime. We are the country which is ruled by the organized crime, unfortunately. That makes us different from other countries. You know, if, if other countries of Central Asia are ruled by certain, you know, political elites, which also serve as, you know, government officials, which hold the position of the president or whatever it's being called. In our case, people who have the most influence on our country's politics are people who are not holding any political position or holding some, you know, minor political position which allows them, you know, to basically steal money. And um, I think right now the most influential person in the country is Kamchi Kolbaev, who is our uh, drug trafficking kind of baron, you know. And um, mm, he is really influential. He's been influential for about a decade or so. Uh, people from, from, you know, the criminal circles, they affect politics stronger than anybody else. And uh, this is what we've witnessed, you know, witnessed especially in 2020, when we sort of almost made, you know, the third revolution in Kyrgyzstan, which was immediately stolen by criminal groups, who just made pressure on the parliament to vote, you know, for a certain person to become the next prime minister, and then the president. And this person is still the president. So anyway, mm, we are a country run by organized crime groups. Now, the organized crime is interesting because un, 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 unlike, you know, unfortunately, unlike us civil society activists, it is much more, you know, connected across the borders. And the organized crime structure within the former Soviet Union is actually quite colonial, you know, uh, because, you know, this so-called, um, I'm not sure if this is the correct English term, but thieves in law or something, I don't know how to say it in English, to be honest. Yeah, I think it works. But they are still being crowned sort of in Moscow, you know. <laughs> I mean, still happens this way. If you look at, you know, the organized crime structure, it's incredible how, you know, it's, it is still sort of Soviet Union kind of stuff in its nature, you know. They, they, they cooperate really well. I mean, Russia is run by uh, an organized crime group. Um, and, uh, um, and, and yes, and our organized crime leaders, they, they have very strong links with, with businesses uh, in Russia. Uh, they actually, you know, what they do is basically, they, they need to be uh, cooperating with, with Russian organized crime because drug traffic goes then to Russia or through Russia to Europe or whatever. Then, uh, you know, smuggling, uh, smuggling that goes through Kyrgyzstan is serving, you know, the uh, the flow of goods from China to either other countries of Central Asia or further again to Russia, you know. So it's, 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 it's actually pretty colonial, this network, you know, in its way, in, in, in a way. And, um, and that's one of the possible reasons why Central Asia is an important kind of, you know, uh, is, is, is an important region for Russia to 
have a control over. Uh, because you know, because because of this, because of the organized crime, it's uh, we we are the region which you know so conveniently located between several huge markets, drug yeah. market and you know goods market. <laughs> yeah, colonialism is also you know people shouldn't really uh, forget that colonialism is a very profitable economic system, and it's not only about uh, messing up with our minds and subjugation and control. But it's also about profit. And in that terms, Russia exists thanks to that loot and profit they get from these kleptocratic uh, networks we create. Yeah, sorry, Valeria, I know you wanted to ask. No, 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 I was going to say something very similar to you, which is that where there is organized crime, there is economic, I guess, domination in terms of what Russia is trying to do. Like they're trying to dominate economically in every way they can and that is one of those ways. Um, but I think we're, we have a couple of minutes, we have 10 minutes left. A variation on our favorite question about what it means to be Ukrainian. We wanted to ask you, how have recent events in Ukraine made you rethink what it means to be Kyrgyz? I think the, the rethinking process started in 2014, not in 2022. Uh, 2022 was just, you know, like the escalation, the enormous, of course, escalation of the war that Russia, I think, had been preparing since 2004. To be honest, uh, since you know the the day when uh, they couldn't install Yanukovych during the 2004 elections, uh, and I, I think they were kind of thinking at least of the idea of you know uh, starting a war in Ukraine since that period. But in 2014, yes, that was for me the period of rethinking. You know, when I came to you know, when I came to Donetsk in May 2014, uh, when I saw you know the these mobs with Russian flags attacking pro-Ukraine supporters in Donetsk, um, which was one of the saddest things I've ever seen in my life, you know. And um, there was this day, it was 22nd of May or something, 2014. It was one of the last days when pro-Ukrainian protest happened in Donetsk. Uh, Renat Akhmedov kind of decided to join the pro-Ukrainian movement back then after thinking for like a couple of months, you know, what he should do. <laughs> so then uh, he, he he decided that he's, well, Ukrainian. And, and he started, you know, this um, um, movement, you know, that he started, you know, this, uh, um, this way of protest that if you support United Ukraine, then you honk, you know, signal on your car every day at noon. And I went, uh, it, was, it was in the very center of Donetsk, uh, one of the central streets of Donetsk. And I prepared with my camera to film what, 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 what would happen. You know, I was just curious because I, I had no idea. Like, would I hear a lot of actually honking? Nobody knew. And then there was so much of honking, and I was like, wow, this is incredible. You know, it was so incredible to see how many people in Donetsk in on the 22nd of May 2014 were actually pro-Ukrainian. You know, so uh, they were honking, and I, and I was thinking, no, they're not gonna leave it like that, right? You know, the separatists who actually had already captured the, the building of Donetsk uh, Oblast administration. And I was standing there with my with my friend, uh, who also was my driver at, at that point, and he's a local resident. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I was like, I'm telling him, something mu must happen, right? I mean, it, it, they, they wouldn't just let it, you know, be like that. And he's like, because I was looking into the camera and he's like, oh, look, they are coming. And then I'm, I'm taking my, you know, eye away from 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 the view viewfinder and i look to the left and i see this mob with russian flags coming to the street and then they take you know stones and whatever they had and start throwing them into any car which uh, honks you know i was like wow this is this was so sad to see so i tried to document it as much as i could and then i look back and i see two policemen standing and doing nothing because it was actually the moment, it, those were the days when uh, Donetsk police kind of decided to, you know, uh, switch their allegiance or something and to, to, to become pro-separatist. And they still were wearing Ukrainian uniform. So they were still having, you know, trizup on, on their, you know, furashkas or whatever it's called. Uh, and I approached them and I, with a camera and I'm like asking them, like, well, why are you not doing anything? And, and they started instead attacking me, asking me like, why do I film them and so on? And then they started threatening me that they will ask, you know, this pro-Russian mob to attack me. And uh, that was one of these huge moments of rethinking. And I was like, 
I mean, it was so, it was so sad to see to what extent it then led. Of course, I could not imagine how more terrible it would become in the future, you know. But that was my moment of rethinking. That was my moment of seeing how how bad it can become when Russia actually starts getting involved into, you know, the domestic policy of another country by sending, you know, whoever to organize, you know, terrible things like this. Mm. Mm. And then later on, I would see more and more, like I would see, you know, Russian soldiers coming to Donetsk uh, in November 2014. I saw like a number of trucks coming from the Russian border with some, you know, military ammunition or whatever. And uh, yeah, so that was my year of rethinking. That was in 2014, I became so angry. And since then, uh, I'm, I'm, that, that was the moment for me, of course, to revisit my thoughts about, you know, colonialism. But, but yeah, basically, <laughs> my war against Russian colonialism started back then, I think, that day in Donetsk especially. Thank you. This is, this is very moving because this so this is a big trigger as well. And uh, knowing that region very well coming from it and then seeing how brute force of someone who's not belonging there, never, you know, these are not their lands and they just were able to steal them by brute force. Um, this is something, yeah. But at the same time, I'm, I'm grateful that through these years you channeled your anger into something productive and that's exactly what we're doing here today talking sharing our experiences is more of a i never thought that this will take a form of a therapy session because it started as a therapy session for just ukrainians who were sharing their experiences related to genocide but also colonialism but when we started inviting other Ukrainian friends from other places recently or previously colonized by Russia. Turns out we also have the same experiences or similar experiences and this also works as therapy session in so many ways. But let's make sure that we channel that anger and that trauma into ending Russian colonialism once and for all. And I think for whether it's modern Kyrgyz generation or Ukrainian generation of people of our age, this is our obligation. This has to stop with with us, and it will hopefully. Thank you so much, Victor. Um, we really appreciate your time, and hopefully you will come back. And thank you so much for what you do for Kyrgyzstan and what you're doing at the moment for Ukraine, because that's also so much. Um, please follow Victor's work um, on Twitter and other social media platforms. And um, wanted to say a special thank you for our Patreons uh, who are making sure that this show is possible. Uh, it's now live. It is a live broadcast now, but it, you might be listening it as a podcast uh, because it's being recorded and uploaded as podcast. And if you do, if you finished listening it, please rate it and comment. This is very important for us to keep trending on podcast platforms, and we're available almost everywhere. And uh, a couple of messages from our patrons. There's one from Dmitry that says, thank you, Spaces, for everything you do. And there is another message from Kate saying, just huge thanks to Bektor for sharing his perspective, creating, uh, creating another bridge and illustrating the parallels in shared experiences in those uh, post-colonial countries. Uh, thank you, Kate, for that as well. Anyhow, this is probably one, you know, I, everything we wanted to share for today um apart probably from one thing that is traditional is slava ukraine thank you everyone bye guys <laughs>